God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book of Job in chapter 2, Satan's Assault. In Job chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. At the base of Job's integrity, which the Lord again repeats and makes mention of, is Job's fear of God and his distaste of evil. If men do not fear God and do not seek to avert following the paths of evil, then they cannot possess any true integrity and can be compromised fairly easily in all matters of life. Hence, only when men fear the Lord will they seek to depart from evil. Integrity at its core must possess both a respect for God and a loathing of evil. When men lack these spiritual qualities, it is easy to lead them to compromise in so many other areas in their life. It is thus God who keeps men by His Word and by His Spirit, walking uprightly in life, so that when men leave the Lord and refuse subjection to Him, then their character is forever damaged, and as far as God is concerned, unrepairable. Integrity having at its base a reverential fear of the Lord and an equal contempt for evil. God defines Job's integrity as being unique in the earth, that there is none like him in the earth. A perfect and an upright man, again, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Job, consequently, was different from so many other men because of his deep and reverential fear of God. It was also this basis of character that would allow him to endure such a difficult trial. The Lord promises men that just as he knows who fears him in the earth, so does he also know the temptations that they are able to overcome. In 1 Corinthians 10:13, we read, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Ellicott on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you. What is meant by a temptation, common to man, is explained further on as a temptation which one is able to bear. From the warning and exhortation of the previous verse, the apostle passes on to words of encouragement. You need not be hopeless or despairing. God permits the temptation by allowing the circumstances which create temptation to arise. But he takes care that no fate bars the path of retreat. With each temptation, he makes a way to escape it. End quote. Though Job's trials were extreme, the Lord knew that he possessed sufficient strength of faith 
able to endure Satan's assaults and ultimately reach God's end for his life, teaching us that if men sin while under even difficult trials, it is not because they did not have the ability to overcome them. As God's grace will make sure that at such time a trial comes, there will be sufficient ability to handle it by remaining both subject to the Lord and confident in His will for our lives. Barnes again on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If people fall into sin under the power of temptation, they only are to blame. They have strength to resist all the temptations that assail them. And God has given the assurance that no temptation shall occur, which they shall not be able by His aid to resist. In all instances, therefore, where people fall into sin, in all the yielding to its passion, to allurement, and to vice, man is to blame and must be responsible to God. And this is especially true of Christians who, whatever may be said of others, cannot plead that there was not power sufficient to meet the temptation or to turn aside from its power, end quote. It is very tempting for people to read a trial like Job's and then themselves be tempted to blame God. As the book has no doubt caused many to bring accusations against the Lord simply because they have lacked the insight to see God's ultimate purpose. It is for this reason that men should not foolishly judge God because also they lack the wisdom of His divine purpose. And just because men might fail God's test, through their own lack of trust in God, does not mean that divine trials are wrong. Ultimately, it will be seen that what Job endured did not exceed the limitations of his faith, but actually in the end strengthened it. The justice of God prohibiting that any man shall be tempted above that which he can by his continued reliance and trust in God also overcome. It is important to remember this lest we judge Job as a victim and God's decision to allow Satan's assaults as wrong, simply because whatever God purposes for man, if they remain confident in him and his will for their life, the trial would be proven to have been purposed for their own good. See, God will never bring men through difficult times unless he knows through his foreknowledge of them that it shall be for their final profit. Consequently, whenever we see great trials permitted by God, at the core, the Lord knows that those who are being tried have the ability to endure until the trial has produced its divine purposes and relief comes. Although thou movest me against him, again the scripture says, to destroy him without cause. Satan implied that the only reason Job feared God was for the selfish reason that God had blessed him and placed a wall of protection around him. This claim was proven false. When Job, even after losing all that he had, still worshiped God and remained subject to the Lord. It is also not uncommon nor rare that Satan makes scandalous claims against God's people. The great accuser of the brethren, surely not concerned if the lies he brings against God's own possess any real merit. Accusations, therefore, do not need to be true for Satan to bring them forth. Hence, 
As a liar, Satan will consistently bring false accusations against the people of God. The devil is therefore described as one who accuses the brethren night and day, showing us how malicious and consistent Satan is to try and impugn even now God's elect. Revelation 12:10 we read, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. In Job's case, devilish accusation was repeatedly brought forth to God in a continual effort to try and produce Job's fall. For Satan to have victory, men will need to, through trial, depart from God. Barnes on Revelation 12.10 The description of Satan as an accuser accords with the opinion of the ancient Hebrews in regard to his character. Thus he is represented in Job 1.9-11, Job 2.4-5, and 5, Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, and 1 Chronicles 21, 1. The phrase of the brethren refers to Christians or to the people of God. And the meaning here is that one of the characteristics of Satan, a characteristic so well known as to make it proper to designate him by it, is that he is an accuser of the righteous, that he is employed in bringing against them charges affecting their character, and destroy the hatred of the devil so great towards the chosen, that not until pain and suffering their influence. The propriety of this appellation cannot be doubted. It is, as it has always been, one of the characteristics of Satan, one of the means by which he keeps up his influence in the world to bring accusations against the people of God. Thus, under his suggestions and by his agents, they are charged with hypocrisy, with insincerity, with being influenced by bad motives, with pursuing sinister designs under the cloak of religion, with secret vices and crimes. Thus it was that the martyrs were accused. Thus it is that unfounded accusations are often brought against the ministers of the gospel, palsying their power and diminishing their influence. Or that when a professed Christian falls, the church is made to suffer by an effort to cast suspicion on all who bear the Christian name. Perhaps the most skillful thing that Satan does, and the thing by which he most contributes to diminish the influence of the church, is in thus causing accusations to be brought against the people of God." From this we learn that those who bring false and erroneous claims against the Lord's elect have close kinship with the devil. Hence, any who engage in the devil's words and follow his pattern of bringing false accusation, you will find, are very likely under his influence. Accusations against the people of God without solid and reliable evidence to prove that it is true show us that there is a high devilish involvement, proceeding also from malicious influence. For none shall reveal their true colors more than when they bring charge against God's elect. The Jews did this to the Son of God, Sanballat with Hezekiah, Korah with Moses. These records and many more teach us that Satan's primary weapon to blunt the outreach of the kingdom of God is by accusing those who seek to strengthen it. 
Job chapter 2, verse 4 now. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for sin, yea, all that a man hath he will give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to the face. Satan did not know what Job would really do. Rather, it was simply his hope that because of Job's bodily suffering, he would curse God. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, Satan sneers bitterly at man's egotism and says that Job bears the loss of property and children because these are mere outward and exchangeable goods. But he will give up all things, even his religion, in order to save his life if you touch his bones and flesh, end quote. We see here Satan's ultimate end, that it is not to simply to remove from Job all that God had blessed him with, but also to bring excruciating pain to his physical body. John 10, 10a, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. The hatred of the devil so great towards the chosen that not until pain and suffering touches their bodies will he be even remotely satisfied. It was not then enough for Jesus to die on the cross unless also before his death those influenced by the devil inflicted as much pain on his body as it could bear. Isaiah 52, 14. And many were astonished or astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. The devil also, with disease, has repeatedly through our human history inflicted the bodies of men. Bodily suffering has always been part of the devil's evil a malicious purpose for man. By touching men's bodies, no doubt Satan wills that their pain will cause them to abandon their religion and to follow himself in rebellion against God. The serpent, cunningly knowing that if man's skin is touched, especially that of an unbelieving man, then God will be cursed. Not only then does the devil seek to inflict pain upon man, but his real aim is that God is damned in the process. Teaching us also that in the end, the devil is both God's and man's greatest enemy. There is a divinity though in undergoing pain. For often when men's spirits are broken, this will help their ears and their hearts to be opened. Thus for spiritually deaf men to hear God's voice, very often a broken life must prepare them for it. The pride of man so great that not until all is either lost or seemingly lost, which can include loss of physical health, will men become humble enough to be taught of God. So that not until most men's spirits are broken, will their hearts and or self-conceit be lowered enough that God can speak to them. For the prodigal son, this took the famine and his complete loss and ability to sustain himself. For David, this was his coming to grips with his sin, which included not only lying with Bathsheba, but also his sin against Uriah, her husband. For us, similar loss and grief may need to be experienced before we come to know that our ways and our thoughts are wrong. The key also for sincere repentance is the inward realization that we have not been partly wrong, but actually completely wrong in both our hearts and actions. Therefore, before true enlightenment can be administered, men shall have to be brought to see 
the true condition of themselves. Psalm 73, 22. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. So also, not only when men come to see the true condition of self, will they be ready to be taught by God. As it often takes pain and suffering for men to depart from a religion that merely speaks of God to one that actually knows him. Verse 6 now. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. The Lord gives Satan permission to do to Job whatever he seemingly desires. But one condition is put on him. He cannot in any way endanger Job's life. The reason for this is simple. It is because God had other plans for this godly man's life after he learned the lessons necessary to bring him to greater spiritual maturity. Jesus was ministered to by the angels after his temptations, so also would Job likewise be ministered to and blessed by God after his own purifying trial was accomplished and God's purposes for him had been fulfilled. Verse 7 now. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Benson on this verse. And smote Job with sore biles, with a foul ulcer, or evil inflammation, say the 70, breaking out and spreading itself over all his body. The biles, it seems, were like those inflicted upon the Egyptians, which are expressed by the same word and threatened to the apostate Israelites in Deuteronomy 28, 27, whereby he was made loathsome to himself and to his nearest relations and filled with consuming pains in his body and no less torments and anguish in his mind from the sole of his foot unto his crown. In all the outward parts of his body, his tongue, says Poole, he spared, that it might be capable of uttering those blasphemies against God which Satan desired and expected him to utter. One boil, when it is gathering, is very distressing and gives a man an abundance of pain and uneasiness. What a condition was Job then in, who had biles all over his body, no part being free, and those as much inflamed as of a raging as a heat, as Satan could make them. If at any time we be exercised with sore and grievous distempers, let us not think ourselves more hardly dealt with than God has sometimes dealt with the best of his saints and servants. We know not how far Satan may have a hand by God's permission in the diseases with which mankind, especially the children of God, are afflicted, or what infections that prince of the air may spread, what inflammations may come from the fiery serpent. We read of one whom he had bound for many years in Luke 13.10. And should God suffer him to have his will against us, he would soon make the best and bravest of us very miserable. It is a judicious remark of Dr. Mead here that it is not Job himself or his friends, but the author of the book who attributes his calamities to Satan. For this writer's intention seems to have been to show by a striking example that the world is governed by the providence of God. And as the holy angels, whose ministry makes use of in distributing his bountiful gifts, punctually execute all his commands, so Satan himself with his agents are under the power of God and cannot 
inflict any evils on mankind without divine permission, end quote. Verse 8 now. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. All that was left for Job to care for himself was a potsherd, instructing us of the depravity of his situation. Where Job's condition needed the most tender and loving care and soothing ointments, all he possessed to deal with his disease was a hard and sharp piece of broken pottery. We see Job also sitting in the ashes of what was once a wealthy life, now alone and having the least of things to comfort him and to help him in his troubles. The potsherd was in fact symbolic of the sad state of Job's broken life. For what was once a beautiful vessel, distinguished and worthy of admiration, now is only rubble. Sitting among the ashes shows us how despondent Job's soul must have been, lacking the strength to stand and having any chance of rebuilding his life. When men finally sit down on a job, it is a sign that they know internally that they are powerless to do anything more through their own power. Job therefore knew that just as he was defenseless to stop the attacks on his family, life and now body, he now resigned himself to simply sit and wait for whatever else awaited him, knowing that internally he was humanly powerless in every way to protect himself. It is also only when men view themselves as totally vulnerable, unable to remain standing by their own strength, that reality finally sets in. And only when men fully realize this can they come to know that all blessing and or cursing is according to God's will. If Job had a fear of God before, now this fear was intensified, teaching us that there is no human resistance able to be mounted whereby men can either protect themselves against God's judgment or through their own power bring about his blessings. Thy will be done, thy will, God's will be done in heaven and in earth. Is there any lesson more needed to learn in the world today than this one? That God controls all so that without his protection and blessing, Satan can do what he wills in the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, a man of great power and influence, similarly learned the same lesson as Job, so that regardless of what even the mighty might possess, whether it be position, wealth, or influence, it cannot protect them from God's overreaching sovereignty and at times Satan's assaults. God is ultimately in control and overrules all, both in heaven and in earth. And men would be wise to realize this, most importantly, first about themselves and then concerning the whole of humanity, teaching us that none, neither governments nor individuals, can stand alone nor can operate independently apart from God's sovereign oversight. As all is God's and Job's life is just a small example of this. Verse 9 now. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. Ellicott on this verse. Then said his wife, Thus it is that a man's foes are they of his own household. The worst trial of all is when those nearest to us, instead of strengthening our hand in God, and confirming our faith, conspired to destroy it, end quote. When men betray even their own family, they will remain the rest of their life loyal to nothing but their own lusts and desires. For he who loves himself most 
leaves no true love for either God or even the closest around him. Micah 7, 6. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are men of his own house. When men turn against their blood, they have turned against the very laws of nature. This is seen in Cain slaying Abel his brother, whereby not even brotherhood could prevent a heart of evil from committing murder. Job's wife's response shows us that where she should have demonstrated compassion, her sinful heart spewed nothing but contempt. This could explain the pleasure-seeking lifestyle of Job's children. For a wife and mother this insensitive to grief could not have influenced her children in any godly way. The very fact she uttered the words, curse God and die, shows us her lack of respect or love for either God or man. So that not only had the devil worked to destroy Job's life, but now the devil's play was to turn Job's own wife against him. Satan had entered Judas's heart when he betrayed Christ, and it's highly likely he did the same here with Job's wife. For none would encourage death, who also did not have strong ties to the evil one whose sole purpose is to advance it in the world. Verse 10 now. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Here Job defends God, even while in great pain himself. Barnes on Job 2.10. This is the true expression of piety. It submits to all the arrangements of God without a complaint. End quote. Perhaps this is something that only true Christians will know. That regardless of God's judgment... Nothing is ever unfair with his actions, so that where an ungodly man will quickly smear God's name in times of trouble, true saints will defend it, more willing that their own character is ruined than that others should lose confidence in their God. To a righteous man, God's name is far more important than his own. Barnes on Job 2.10 now. In addition to that, true piety feels that all claim to any blessing if it had ever existed, has been forfeited by sin, end quote again. When righteous men then suffer loss, their eyes will first be focused on themselves, knowing that even if their sin remains unknown to them, still sin must have been committed. Hence, for the godly, it is not victimization from God that they will most strongly feel when under severe trial, but rather that some hidden sin is being by God's justice dealt with. Instead of then murmuring against the Lord, Job held fast his fear of God and confidence in God's ways. Verse 11 now. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Elipaz and Bildad and Zophar, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. We now, as the structure reveals, are ready for the next important section in the book the arrival of Job's three friends, Illipad, Bildad, and Zophor. No doubt these men were godly associations of Job. Yet as the record will reveal later, they ultimately lacked any proper wisdom to help in the situation, teaching us that though men may be sincere and even share in the same faith in God as ourselves, it does not mean that the words they speak will either be prompted from God's Spirit or able to help heal anything. Therefore, just because a man is a Christian, 
He should not presume that all he says, or in fact anything he says, comes from God's Holy Spirit, as foolishness is often prone to flow from the mouth of those who, though they believe in God, have little wisdom given to them from God. When, then, we come to mourn and comfort people in their troubles, it will be proven wise if we engage in nothing beyond what God inspires us to either do or say. Good intentions, as it shall be seen, will have no bearing whatsoever in helping to attain divine results. When men are in pain, it is God's counsel alone which can help them, as no human reasoning, even if it speaks of God, will benefit those under trial at all. For this reason, the Scriptures advise us to be quick to hear and slow to speak, until also by inspiration we are given something meaningful to say, James 1.19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now Job chapter 2, verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes, these are Job's three friends, afar off, and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle, and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards the heaven. Verse 13, so they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Initially taken back by Job's appearance, Job's friends could hardly recognize that this was the same man they once knew. Job's physical change, altered by his boils and very likely loss of weight, revealed the shell of the man he once was. Naked and plagued with disease, Job's form was at first unrecognizable. Because of the sight of Job, it prompted the three to cry aloud tear off their own clothes, and then sit on the ground with their friend. Though Illipaz, Bildad, and Zophor would later prove to have little wisdom and needed themselves to be prayed for, still they did evidence strong human compassion. Benson on verse 13. A long silence, says Dr. Dobb, is a very natural effect of an extraordinary grief which overwhelms the mind and creates a sort of stupor and astonishment. End quote. Amen.